welcome back everyone. Hope everyone's had a chance to have a cup of coffee and chat to people and stuff. Um, our next speaker today, you'll already have uh, got quite familiar with her work, both through Liz's talk uh, and hopefully you've had a good chance to look at Signing Bodies as well, which features um, some, are they prototypes really? Prototypes. Yeah, prototypes yes. of the next generation of uh, Martin models for neurosurgical training, so the paediatric versions. Uh, it's Claire Rangeley, and she's going to speak to us about that next generation of models. Hi, I am, um, actually I'm a practicing sculptor, uh, which I've been doing for over 30 years, and also I've been designing and making medical training models for over 20 years. Uh, so there aren't many parts of the body that I haven't actually modelled, especially the internal wobbly bits with which I'm so familiar. Um, so uh, I'll give you a bit of the background. Uh, for, for, for over 20 years, I've, I've been working for a company called Limbs and Things. And uh, in the early days, sort of beginning of the 90s, training for surgeons was quite limited. It tended to be see one, do one, which means you observe uh, an, a, an, a surgeon, an expert doing it, and then you have a go. Uh, understandably, patients, uh, where things went wrong, started complaining about that. And um, so this is where the idea of uh, actually training models comes in, in that you bridge the gap you, you, between all the knowledge that the surgeon has, has gained through study, through looking at anatomical models, looking at books, reading up, being, and observing things. And then before they actually get onto the patient, you have this period in between where you try and hone their practical skills. Because surgery has been described as a practical skill. And uh, so trying to get that into part of their training, I think, is very important. So in the early days, um, it, you know, training has come a long way in the, the last 20 years, no doubt about it. To start with, there was this idea from, from, from surgeons as well as uh, everybody involved that you had to make things realistically. When I say realistically, what does that actually mean? Uh, you had to put everything in so that when they saw this bit of body, it looked exactly like... They would, they would see that bit of the body. So you'd put the skin in, you put the muscles in, you put all the vessels in, it would bleed. And then gradually over the years, training has, has, has moved on and people have realised that actually that's great, but it's far too expensive. You know, if you, if you, you can basically you can make anything, you can make a bit of the body as realistic as you like, but if it costs £20,000 you're not going to be able to train 100 new surgeons for that on a course. So you're trying to um, make something as realistic as possible, but just for what you're training. So, so I was... Um, so I, I was... I, I now don't work for limbs and things. I am freelance, and I've been asked by the Royal College of Surgeons. I've been brought in to help develop a paediatric head model um, for training young neurosurgeons. So this is actually a bit of the body that I've never worked on. So it was quite nice to have something, something totally new to get to grips with and learn about. 
So what do I know about the brain? What did I know about the brain? Well, I did know one thing, and that a quarter of the blood that is pumped from the heart goes to the brain. That's a huge proportion for the size of our bodies. And the other thing I knew about neurosurgery, probably linked to this, is that it is very dangerous. So what better uh, to do than to make a training model to train these, these brave people who've decided that neurosurgery is, their, is for them and is going to be their career and therefore make it safer for all of us who one day might need their expertise, hopefully not. So, where to start? Well, initially, I had a, a very brief brief from the consultant neurosurgeon, Mary Murphy, um, and all it said was, let me see, it said, posterior fossa tumor and hydrocephalus in an 18-month-old child. So, not much to go on, you might think. However, I've worked with uh, consultants for many years, and I, I know that, that you don't tend to get a lot of information to start with. They have in their head an idea for a training model. They have years and years of experience, not only of doing an operation, but also years and years of experience of trying to train other people to do that operation. So who better to go to for that information? So in their heads, they have an idea of what they want in a real, you know, in an ideal world, this is what I want. So then I come in and say, okay, this is a realistic world. Uh, let's see what we can do. So what should we start? Hang on, I've lost, I've lost my thing. So before I even meet the surgeon, so I've just had this short email from her. So before I even meet her, I think what I need is I need a common language. Uh, I'm a sculptor, I make things. I, the information I need to know to be able to make something I need to extract from this consultant's brain. Uh, but she speaks a different language. She speaks a language of medicine and surgery. So we need a common something. And that something is a very basic model. What I need is a skull, a brain, something where I can put it in front of her and say, tell me what you mean when you, when you say a tumor. Is it here? Is it here? Does the brain need to be this soft? Does it need to be hard? You know, where do you actually put the probe? Where do you cut? What does it feel like? So I, I go armed with uh, several, several things. So we'll start with uh, the head of an 18-month-old child. Unfortunately, they're quite difficult to get hold of. So, well, not that aren't already attached to a whole body. So um, where do I start? I start with a skull. rather wonderful picture of a skull. So why I start with the skull is because the skull, and, and not the brain and not any other part, is the skull defines the, the whole model. It is the, it's the casing for everything inside it. It 
Uh, if you look inside a skull, in fact, on the right here, you'll see that all the, all, all the shapes, they, that, that is the shape and size of the brain, exactly fits into that. So without the skull, I can't make the brain. So initially, there was an idea that we were going to uh, have real scan data from a patient, um, you know, clinical scan data. But not only was this going to be problematic because of getting permission, but when we actually got a, a sort of sample through, a uh, picture through of what it would look like, we were rather depressed because the, the quality was very poor and the detail was very poor. Because if you imagine when you take a, um, a CT scan of a patient, they don't want to be in the scanner for you know three hours to take beautiful detail all the way around. They just take what they need to find the location of a tumour. So what we, what we would have been left with was a, a sort of vague skull shape with, with steps in it like this, not beautifully round. Anyway, then Martin showed me uh, this rather beautiful skull on the left, which is in the college's collection. It is absolutely immaculate specimen of an approximate 18 months, two month, two year old child skull uh, from around the 1900s or before. But the problem is it has to stay in that glass case. It is incredibly fragile. There is only one of it and it's you know, the college is never going to be able to get another child's skull. It's far too complicated ethically. Uh, so what were we going to do? So for the first time now, and, and that's what I, I like about uh, where we are at the moment in terms of uh, making and ability to make models, is that we have cutting-edge technology mixed with very, very ancient techniques that the, the Greeks were using thousands of years ago. So we decided to get it scanned and 3D printed. And on the, the picture on the right, you can see the scan. It's been cut in half. Um, so we can now see inside it and see all the detail. Uh, it's, it's in the exhibition, so you, you should be able to see it. Unfortunately, you can't handle it because it's in a case. But uh, you could. Uh, it's made of quite a robust plastic, so now people can actually have a look, have a look at the intricate detail of all the anatomy within that skull. And I tell you, any surgeon that has seen that has got terribly excited and, and gone, oh, can, can we do this then? Uh, uh, you know, the ear, sur you know, ear surgeons have a look and, oh, my goodness me, you know, we can do this. So, So there it is. So, so we got the, I got this beautiful skull back, and the first thing I had to do was cut it in half, which I know it's a print, but it was still quite scary. So the, the one, one of the important things to note on this uh, skull is the gap in the top of the skull, the fontanelle. Those of you who've got children will... Uh, remember how scary it is when they're little and it, you can see it's all soft, it goes straight through to their brain. Um, and that's the whole way. And that, that's, that's really important for this model uh, 
because it, it closes up by the time they're about two years old. So that's why it's an 18-month-old uh, child. So now we move on to the brain. <laughs> Next bit. So on the left is uh, Martin's cast from a real adult brain, um, which he used as a basis for the adult Martin. So for the purposes of this model, actually, we don't need a child's brain. It's the, the what's actually going to be trained on this teaching model is it, it, a child's brain actually is, is different from uh, an adult's brain in that it doesn't have so many cortexes. If that's the right uh, plurality of the word. Um, but it doesn't really matter. It just needs to look like a brain. So I used uh, the, base, the, the, the adult brain on the left as a basis to make a wax model. So I made a mold of it, put, uh, painted in wax to a, to a, so it was hollow. And then I, I, I shaped it. I, I could bend it and shape it so it fitted exactly into the, uh, the child's skull. So it was a nice snug fit. Actually, one of the things, one of the, one of the nice things about making things is that as you're doing it, you're learning something. Things surprise you that you had no idea about, you had no concept of beforehand. And in fact, I was asking Susan Standing earlier whether this was so. And when I, I had the size of the adult brain, obviously it was too big for the skull. So I, I actually modelled it in three parts. The left hemisphere, the right hemisphere, and then a separate cerebellum. So I cut it into three, and the, the, the hemispheres, I had to make quite a lot smaller to fit into the skull. I had to take quite a lot off. However, the cerebellum was the same size. So I asked Susan, I said, does this mean that when you're born, you, your cerebellum is pretty much fully formed, it's, it's the same size. And she said, well, basically, yes. But you can ask her for the more detail. It's a bit complicated. <laughs> so now, we, now it starts getting a bit trickier. That's all simple. Nice skull, nice brain. Now we move to the inside of the brain and the ventricles. Now this is where it gets very complicated for several reasons. One, what comes first, the outside or the inside? There's no use modeling a beautiful solid brain and then, you know, looking at these Thompson casts of ventricles on the left, just sort of modeling up some and go, oh, beautiful ventricles. And then suddenly when you put the two together, they don't fit, or it might fit, but it doesn't have the right relationship anatomically between the ventricles and the outside of the brain. Because basically the brain is made up of several lobes and the ventricles are the spaces in between those lobes. So they have to correspond to the lobes that are on the outside. If you're finding this hard to get your head around, I still find it hard to get my head around. <laughs> so the one that the nice diagram on the right just shows you where they are placed within the brain and the lateral ventricles. The third ventricle is like the, the little one in the middle with an eye, 
as I call it, and then the fourth ventricle. The fourth ventricle is within the cerebellum. Now, the, the, for, for the purposes of this model, the ventricles on the left, they're great for study, but in terms of what, what we need to make, they're not much use, because what we're making in a training model is a specific... Um, uh, to train a, a specific uh, operation, and, one, and that is, or well, part of it is, that the ventricles have got enlarged, i.e. fluid on the brain. The tumour has restricted the flow so that the, the, the fluid builds up and builds up and builds up, so the ventricles always get blown up like a balloon and push the brain against the skull. So you, you can get enormous ventricles. So I had to model the enlarged ventricles, not an, uh, an actual uh, normal ventricle. And, it, and in actual fact, I decided that because we had two sides of the brain, that one side I could make quite easy for the first trial of... of uh, drawing fluid off the ventricle, make a nice big ventricle so that they couldn't miss it. And then the other side I made quite hard, just a little bit enlarged, so they had to really know their anatomy to be able to hit it. So I start modelling the ventricles, but they have to relate to the brain, so I model them inside my wax brain. And the one on the right is the cerebellum. I cut it in half, and then that's uh, a model of the, the, the fourth ventricle and how, that's, how that sits inside it. Okay, so now I've got this very rough model. I've just roughed things out. Bit of a, you know, the brain fits the skull. The skull's all there. And then the ventricle I've roughed out. So now I'm ready to meet the surgeon for the first time. We have something to talk about. Are the ventricles in the right place? Are they about the right size? Would you expect them bigger, smaller? Do I need to put the third ventricle in? All questions like, that. where does the tumour exactly sit within the cerebellum? Um, what, which, you know, how do you, how do you gain access to that cerebellum? Which part of the skull? So uh, it, it's a fact-finding, big fact-finding um, first meeting. Also, you hope that the surgeon will see this and start to imagine how the final ma uh, model might actually work and that actually it can work, it is achievable. So my first meeting with the consultant, I then find out that there's not just this nice one line uh, procedure to practice on the model, there are in fact five procedures very important. You know, young neurosurgeons, there are five key things that they must learn how to do uh, as, as a first way. Okay, five things. Fair enough. Undaunted. Don't, you know, don't bat an eyelid. Carry on. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you about them later when we've actually got something to, to, to see. 
So now we move on to the first prototype, which is something that is a, a working prototype that uh, you'll be able to actually, she will be able to actually do the, the procedures on and see how that goes. I'm still not investing too much time. I'm, I'm still sort of roughing out, but I'm trying to use the right materials, the right anatomy, pull it all together and have a go. So, prototype number one. On the left, you can see the skull, slightly different from the 3D print. As you can see, 3D print is, is beautiful, but actually I don't need a lot of it. I have to be able to reproduce it quite cheaply, reasonable cost. So I take out a lot of the detail that's not needed, all the eye sockets, all the detail in the back of the you know, underside of the palate, taking the jaw away, filled in uh, around the nose as well. So now it's starting to be a model. But I've left enough anatomy there um, for the procedure. I've left the bridge of the nose because that is one of the points they have to feel. They don't need the nose, they just need to feel the bridge of the nose and the bone here at the back of the ear. So I had this great idea that um, to be able to reuse the model lots of times um, so that so that the trainee can, get, can practice again and again and again, uh, tapping the ventricles, drawing fluid off out of the ventricles. So I, that's what the um, tubes are for going into the brain. And I made this beautiful brain out of silicon, lovely and wobbly. It was, you know, like jelly, just like the real thing. The surgeon felt it. Oh, that's lovely. That's, that, that feels great. I filled it with water, glued it up. It was, Fabulous, completely useless. <laughs> uh, the, the problem is that silicon, whatever you do to it, whatever things that I added, I added powder, I added lots of silicon oil. It, was, it, it looked great, it felt great, but you could not get a catheter through it. It's just too elastic. Um, and, and that is the, the conversation you have between reality what is reality? Um, That's the difference between special effects, something that feels great or something that looks great, but actually what I'm trying to make is something that feels right when in a surgical procedure, and that is a whole different reality. And one you can only find out from the surgeon. It's not something you can, you can read in a book. You can get an idea of but you need them to really pinpoint what is important. So everything else was fine on the model, and I mocked up a little bit of the base of the cranium with the first vertebra, just, to, just to, because you'd given me no information about what a, what's the, how to get rid of this tumour in the cerebellum, so I just mocked it up, and uh, then she could actually describe what she does. So having explored different ways of making the brain, I mean, uh, Martin Cook had already made uh, a brain for the adult Martin, and I was very familiar with that. And um, 
you know, and in some ways it's very easy to use, but technically as a, as a material, as a sculptural material, it'll never catch on. And uh, if you want to know how difficult it is to use, I, I'll give you a little experiment to do at home. The next time you make a jelly, get your mould and your liquid jelly made in the normal way. Then suspend some object within that mould. Pour the jelly in, put it in the fridge. Then try and get that object out of the jelly without trashing the jelly. Then pour a liquid into that hole left by the object. Then seal the jelly up and there you've got a brain. So if you can do that, then you've got my job. So yes, it was back to the, um, basically what's a, a mix of gelatine and uh, water and uh, glycerin which to, to make uh, a realistic, uh, a realistic brain but that works when you put a catheter through it and it's got to hold liquid. So uh, um, some of the brains that Martin made were, were fabulous and they look great but you have to keep them in the fridge or the freezer otherwise they disintegrate so we we changed the formula of the brain to make it a little bit harder not too hard that you couldn't get the catheter through but hard enough to be more stable and hard enough to um to be able to keep liquid within it so now we move on to the second prototype now this is uh, you might recognize this from the exhibition um, this isn't the you know, actual prototype it, it, it's all the elements of it but it's made specially for uh, the exhibition to show what's inside so on the right you can see I've made a clear brain and the blue is where the liquid would be within the ventricles and then the bottom section shows where the tumor is uh, in the cerebellum and the space of the fourth ventricle. So that, that, that was all the elements. And then I made it into a complete model for, um, for the trial, which happened on Wednesday, this Wednesday, two days, three days ago. Um, so the consultant uh, surgeon, Mary Murphy, she came up to the education department here and we rigged up various uh, instruments and she performed all the procedures on it. And uh, there's always that moment where you think, it's a, it's a disaster, what, what am I doing? It's never gonna work. And, uh, and then at the end you go, it all worked fine. You know, of course it would. So the top left one is, is uh, she has uh, uh, taken, for the uh, craniectomy, she's taken the, the base of the cranium out, she's taken the section of the first vertebra and now and peel the dura away, which is the lining between the brain and the skull. And she is going in through there to remove the tumour. And then the one on the right has made a small hole in the skull. And that's where she's putting, she's using her knowledge of anatomy. So, you know, some of those Thompson casts where you can, you can see the inside of something the picture that they have in their head is almost like that, a map. So as they're feeling 
their way in. And she did say to me, I said, well, what angle do you go in at? She says, well, it's a kind of, it's more of an art than a science. You just kind of feel it. Anyway, of course she got it first time, but. <laughs> uh, so she's inserting a catheter and drawing off the excess liquid from the ventricles. The one on the bottom left is tapping the fontanelle, so that's the part of the skull which hasn't yet fused up. And then the one on the right is taking the part of the temporal muscle out, the temporal bone, um, peeling back the dura to reveal the brain. And from that, they can then do various different operations. But it's, the, it's that bit of the procedure that for first stage neurosurgeons, that's what they need to learn. So I'll leave you with a couple of images of the brain. The one on the left is the Thompson corrosion cast of the blood vessels in the brain. And a reminder that a quarter of the blood from the heart goes to the brain and an extra hazard the surgeon has to negotiate when it comes to real patients as opposed to the model. The one on the right is a photo of a real brain in situ. I guess this is the first image of the brain that the surgeon sees once he's cut through the skull and the, uh, the dura. It must be quite a scary moment to suddenly realise you've got to put your instruments through that brain. And finally, I'll leave you with the words of the now-retired neurosurgeon, Henry Marsh, in his book, Do No Harm where he beautifully describes his own thoughts as he performs surgery on the soft white substance that is the brain. So you imagine him pushing his instruments through that picture on the left, through the soft white substance, moving through thought itself, through emotion and reason, that memories, dreams and reflections should consist of jelly is simply too strange to understand. Thank you very much, Claire. That was really interesting. It's always fascinating to hear about what happens on other floors of the college <laughs> entirely without us knowing. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, does anyone have any questions for Claire? We've got five minutes. Liz? Yes, I mean, it, it, it goes back to actually the Hicks models and some of the other, the other models we've seen in that what are you actually trying to do with this? You're not trying to recreate the human body. You're trying to teach something. And, and the Hicks models, you might look at them and think, they're really basic. What are they going to do? But from the eyes of the surgeon, they are very, very particular very, very particular movements. He knows exactly what he's trying to teach with that. And to the layperson, that's harder to, to spot. Um, so that's, that's what I'm trying to do, you know, is, is, is take out all the things that aren't needed and hone in to the 
to the most important bit. And yes, to the to most of us, it seems, and to a lot of people, it seems like you're you're making it less realistic. But actually, what you're doing, you're making it more realistic. But from the surgeon's point of view, not from our point of view. Not it, you know, it wouldn't stand up on a film as being realistic. Where's all the blood? Where's it? Doesn't look realistic. But from the surgeon's point of view, that is way more realistic than you know. Um, you know anything you could make for a film or whatever. You know, so different different things. Um, well, each. That's right. It will be one surgeon, one model, or depending on how much they want to, um, how much they want. I mean, there's lots of things you can do on the model. You know, you can practice your cutting out bits of uh, skull until there's nothing left. Um, but in terms of the the brain, yes, it has a, it has a shelf life. So that's 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 the challenge. It's not possible to make something when they're going to cut so much of it away that you can reuse. <laughs> So, um, and that's part of the decision-making process, what to put in. So that's why I've tried to make the um, skull simple so that it's easy and cheap to reproduce. So the idea is that it's quite an inexpensive model um, that, that's, that can be used on a training course with 20 surgeons. And actually, it'll be much cheaper than having uh, using cadavers or, yeah, which is the alternative. Yes, that's right. I mean, um, well, it, exactly. I mean, I, that was that was a slight exaggeration. But but yes, there's no doubt that um, alternative forms of training, uh, which is basically the only other alternative, is cadavers, um, which is highly expensive, and uh, obviously you only they only get one go on it anyway, um, and it doesn't have the pathology. It doesn't have uh, anything, it doesn't have anything in the ventricles, it, it's not a child, you know, all those things. Um, and for that amount of money, you could do a whole lot of, uh, of the trainees uh, and then reproduce it again for the next set uh, of people. But it's it, interesting, actually, I, I did want to say about... Uh, when, when um, Anna was talking about the, um, the anatomical models, and then she showed that slide of an obstetric model, which was basically like a, almost made up of material, a stuffed doll with a baby. And what did you think when you saw that? Did you think, wow, that's amazing, what a great training model? Or did you think, oh, that looks a bit village? You know, uh, I would suggest you probably thought it looked a bit village. However, I know because uh, I've worked on uh, a, training, a birthing training model and somebody, did, somebody I worked with did a bit of research and when that model was made and was sent around France, 
to, to train all the midwives, it saved something like 20% of, of lives of mothers and babies. And that is the point of making training models. It's to save lives. It's not for any other reason. And that's hopefully what we can do. Okay, maybe just quickly, just one quick question at the back. Yeah. There is dust, yes. I mean, there is dust in brain surgery. But they have a continuous flow of liquid which washes it away. You, well, no, you can when you're, do, when you're cutting the skull because the, 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 there's the dura, there's a layer of dura. Um, and, and actually, for the length of time that they're doing the operation, the gelatine will stay, will be fine, having water washed over it. It's only over time that the, it starts um, sort of the water doesn't initially go into the gelatine, it sort of sits on top, but it gradually sort of finds its way in and, yeah, and, and destabilizes the gelatine, yes. So it, in some ways it's uh, a problem, but it's not a, it's one of those things, it's um, how important is it to address that problem? Actually, you just need to irrigate it more as you would in life, so. That, that's where we are at the moment. And then, but you're always looking for improvements. You're always looking for a better material, uh, one that doesn't exist yet, usually. <laughs> well, Mary was saying that, you know, I, I asked her that as she was whizzing through, and she said, well, uh, two hours to do the craniectomy at the back for a student, so an hour to do this one, that's what you would expect for them to, 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 to spend, plus all the other things. So basically, you know, they're going to fit their uh, training into a day, uh, a day's course. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's at the prototype stage where you don't actually know how long it's going to last, what its shelf life, but but ideally you'd be making them to go straight on the training course. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for your questions and thank you very much, Claire. Okay. Well, what a fascinating day. <laughs> I'm given the unenviable task of trying to uh, follow these. Actually, can we have the previous slide back up? I rather like it. Thanks, Paula. Um, of, of following such eloquent and varied speakers. And it's the variety is what really struck me today of what started off as a very self-indulgent, narrow um, day actually ended up with a great many varieties. I'll come back to that. But first of all, of course, the pretty picture prize. We're not actually going to award this, but because uh, it's too difficult, and we can guarantee that Liz would not have won it with her dead foot picture. I don't like that picture. You know I don't like that picture. And Eleanor, you would not have won it with those melting wax nastinesses. Um, but, you know, if you want to write on your um, uh, uh, evaluation sheet, which I hope you'll return, 
It might be Thompson's lungs. I actually, when I first mentioned it, I thought, well, who's going to be able to beat Thompson's colored lungs? They're stunning. But Sassini's thumb was very dramatic, I thought. Ozu's snail I'm very fond of. Miranda, your iris was rather wonderful. Blaschka's iris, I should say, and Annette's orchids. And even Claire's ventricles have a strange sort of beauty to them. So if you'd like to, to pop your vote on the back of your sheet, maybe a hot cross bun will go to the presenter who presented the nicest picture. But in terms of the varieties of things that we saw in what was ostensibly a very narrow field, you know, anatomical and, and other scientific modeling, it's, it's striking the varieties that we encountered. So um, the range over time that you see medical models being used, even just in the, the range of papers today, we have from the early modern to last Wednesday. The range of practices and practitioners, so town secrets to Ozu's factories, uh, Martin's workshop, the notion of using the, the brains to destruction is of course quite unusual and contrasts to the others that we were hearing about. And the sort of techniques used, glass blowing, um, uh, and that you use dental tools, I think you said. So the variety of improvised techniques right up to full-on factory manufacture, I thought that was particularly interesting. That I'll take away um, today and think about more. But especially, actually, materials used. And this penultimate question was about materials. And over lunch, over the, um, the kind of hands-on session at lunchtime, a lot of the questions were about materials. And any of you will ask me a question will have noticed that I don't know a great deal about the materials um, that my, my colleagues used. But the makers in the room are, you are quite understandably obsessed about the materials. And the range of materials we encountered today I'd started to try to write them down, and non 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 uh, um, uh, comprehensive list would include wood and wax and papier mache and varnish and paper and plastic, living flesh. When we were all standing on our feet, I'm getting a bit obsessed with plaster at the moment. And Anna, you did mention plaster very briefly, so I wanted to have something that no one had. But plaster of Paris, which is very common and very very widespread and very simple. Um, uh, was also mentioned. Uh, we had glass, we had silicone, Canada balsam, and my two favorites were jelly um, and uh, cigarette ash um, as part. Uh, the, this I enjoyed. There's a variety of um, species. <laughs> so we had, we focused on humans, but we also had uh, Ozu's knowledgeable cows, many species in the, this afternoon, of course, the horses that may have been donkeys this morning, um, sea slugs and snails. I didn't expect to encounter them today. And of course, one thing that I'm particularly um, uh, interested in emphasizing is that we think about models and we focus on the whole bodies. We focus on the grand Ozu whole body. But actually, in terms of what's in museums, the majority of models in museums are of fragments or of body parts. So the brains, we had a lot about brains today and lungs and, and so on. Um, and so we should think about not only glorious full bodies, whether of a, of a human or another animal, um, but parts of, of bodies from jellyfish gonads, 
um, to who mentioned internal wobbly bits. I think that was your phrase for your, your professional practice. Um, and even the banana was sliced in half, was it not, the, the glass banana? So it's fragments of bodies um, that are there. But actually, I think what made today the success that I hope you share with me was, was the variety of, of expertise around the room and the conversations that happened over coffee and over lunch and in the questions. So I lost count after I'd listed anatomy and anthropology and art and biology and conservationism, museum conservation, and forensics and history and whatever mortuary folk would call your professional background. Um, and surgery and the bearded co uh, co um, uh, cohort from special effects. Thank you for your contribution today. And that's, I think, what has made this day a particularly interesting day. And for that, I'd like to thank you all for coming. Um, I'd like to thank my uh, all the speakers for giving such eloquent, wonderfully illustrated and contrasting papers. I'd like to thank my colleagues in the Royal College of Surgeons of England, Museums and Archives and beyond, Bruce for chairing. There's a lot that goes behind the scenes, uh, my colleagues upstairs. Um, but especially, I would like to thank Hayley Kruger, who's run the whole thing. And on that, I'd like to close with a round of applause for Hayley. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>